they'll be able to see how this uh, hoax, how the hoax or witch hunt started and why it started. Uh, it was a an attempted coup or an attempted takedown of the president of the United States. You're going to learn a lot. I hope it's going to be nice, but perhaps it won't be. It's part of the uh, uh, Trump and Republican plot to dirty up the uh, intelligence uh, community. The, the public narrative they wanted to tell was this deal ended before the primaries even began, before the Iowa caucuses. We had no business dealings uh, with any Russians or, or the Russian government after that point. That was a lie. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. You know how when people quote themselves, they make themselves sound good? Like they might say something like, okay, so Spencer's like, we're done. And I'm like, no, we are done. Meaning I'm the one making it done, you douchebag. You know, they sound like decisive and eloquent and powerful in their own telling. Well, not Trump. When he quotes himself, he sounds just as garbled as when he actually talks. Case in point, here's Trump talking. I walked into the room and I told Senator Schumer and Speaker Pelosi, I want to do infrastructure. I want to do it more than you want to do it. I'd be really good at that. That's what I do. But you know what? You can't do it under these circumstances. So get these phony investigations over with. Oh, it's infrastructure he's been trying to do all along? No. It seems like Trump's chief policy initiative is what it's always been, the obstruction of justice. Because when he walked out of this meeting with Pelosi and Schumer, he made it a whole three minutes on the stopwatch. He said, they think I did a cover-up. I don't do cover-ups. Maybe instead of infrastructure week, we need infrastruction week. Got it? Okay, sorry. I just hate this thing where they don't show up. The Trump syndicate dodges subpoenas. They call investigations over when the investigations haven't started, as with Brett Kavanaugh and Jamal Khashoggi. They won't take questions. They won't have press conferences. They won't turn over documents or tax returns. And they storm out of meetings. American politics require a lot of fights. Refereed fights, fair fights, but fights. We duke it out where you get in the ring with a prosecutor or a journalist or the public or someone from another party, and you get it done. You hash it out. That's what our adversarial system of checks and balances is about. But these guys won't even get in the ring. They can't stand it for three minutes. They frame this whole shrinking violet, I won't play, wall of words, don't count the votes, don't subject Jared Kushner to a background check as strength, when all they're saying every day, louder and louder, is that they— Everyone in and around the Trump syndicate can't and don't hold up to scrutiny or challenge or questions. My guest today is someone who doesn't let people shirk the fight. In a time when getting elementary documents like Trump's tax returns sometimes seems near impossible, Jason Leopold, the investigative reporter for BuzzFeed News, is a FOIA fiend. He basically is never not using the Freedom of Information Act to pry open vaults of power. Yesterday, he got word back from the Department of Justice that they have documents for him that he applied for in 2013. He is a patient man, and I get a little awestruck when I think about Jason Leopold and his reporting partner, Anthony Cormier, because time and time again, they've been first to Trump Russia news and details. But that doesn't mean I won't ask Jason non-fawning questions like, why do you wear black flag T-shirts? And how does that help your reporting? Why you got to go messing with Hillary Clinton's emails? And also, why do you seem kind of like Glenn Greenwald? 
Jason gamely answers all these questions and gives a preview of what's next after the Mueller report in FBI drama. Hey, Jason, thank you for joining me on Trumpcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been your sidekick, Anthony Cormier, just out of laziness, who's been here all the time. But now we have the main event. I'm glad you refer to him as my sidekick. Thank you. <laughs> Anthony, if you're listening, we think you'll be rewarded by our press for being the sidekick of Jason Leopold. All right. I'm just going to dive right into this. I've pretty much made no secret of my favoritism for BuzzFeed News and for your reporting with Anthony in particular on the subject of Trump's money and Trump's Russia ties. And I've been trying to figure out and preparing to talk to you, trying to figure out why BuzzFeed. So I'm going to try something out on you, which is that political protests and really adversarial journalism don't typically take place in venerable institutions. There's too much of a tax on being oppositional. So it was Kent State and not Harvard that had the most, you know, bloody muscular anti-war protests. And this time it's been scurvy old BuzzFeed with you and Cormier. You're like an ex-addict, right? And you and your memoir talk about mental illness. And Anthony's like the father of eight and born in a trailer. You know, you guys are not white shoe New York Times people. You were at Vice, you were at Al Jazeera, and you've been relentless and oppositional and just right over and over again on this story. Not the New York Times, not the Washington Post. And it's just sort of time to say that. And how was it buzz, which American Girl doll are you feed that got the story? I love this, by the way. You can just keep talking and I'll just listen. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, first of all, obviously, you know, for the support and for recognizing our work. You're right. I mean, first of all, in in reference to you made a reference to my personal struggles. I mean, those those are issues and things that I've dealt with, you know, decades ago. Mm -hmm. And I've made no secret, you know, of that. As you noted, you know, I wrote a book on it. Um, Journalism has always been something that I've been incredibly passionate about, you know, a quick story. I took out my high school yearbook sometime back, was looking through it and reading some of the messages that people had written to me. And, you know, at the time, this was when I graduated high school, somebody wrote in my yearbook, Dear Jason, hope you become a good journalist one day. Mm. And although I remember being really passionate about journalism in high school, I didn't realize that I had been so vocal about it that it would lead someone to actually write such a message to me. But it obviously is something that I've been hugely passionate about, speaking truth to power, obtaining documents, um, fiercely transparent, trying to highlight injustices. The work that Anthony and I have done over the past two years, I feel like it's because we've been so dogged. To your question as to why BuzzFeed, I'm not sure it's why BuzzFeed as opposed to Anthony and Jason, you know? Yeah, good, go ahead. When it came to cultivating sources, when it came to obtaining information, I mean, people recognize the work that we as journalists have done individually. You know, Anthony is a Pulitzer Prize winner. You know, I have my fair share of prizes, but I've done, you know, quite a bit of work on a wide range of issues. And the sources that, you know, we would cultivate and the people that we would end up speaking with and who would divulge information to us recognize that. And when they, when it came down to actually looking at our body of work, the place in which we were publishing our work, whether it was Vice, you know, for Anthony, the Tampa Bay Times, or even BuzzFeed, 
that just sort of disappeared. And it was the mm-hmm. individual journalists and the work that we were doing that resonated with people. I've done a lot of Freedom of Information Act work where I, yes. you know, file Freedom of Information Act requests, pry loose documents, and have often sued the government to shed light on what's been taking place behind the scenes. And I think that that has made quite a bit of an impact on people. So when it came down to it, that was something that people recognized about us. There are obviously so many plots in play that it's hard to concentrate on any one of them at any given time. But the one about the sort of evolution of journalism in the past two and a half years, and BuzzFeed has been front and center with that first, I don't know, maybe this isn't first, but first came up when you all took the bold step of publishing the Steele dossier, I think, which turned out to be an extremely meaningful step and just boldly going for it, then getting sued right and left, including by Michael Cohen, and then finally just doing this receipts driven reporting, following the money that led to this, whatever it was, kind of slap on the wrist or something hazing kind of by the Office of the Special Counsel. So that's particular story that I want to hear a little more about from you is one of the plots of the evolution of journalism. But the other one is something about sourcing. And now that everybody's an expert on how to do journalism, you hear people out of the profession talking a lot about access journalism, anonymous sources. But you guys seem to get a whole different crop of sources, not the kind of sources that you cultivate for access, but more like the whistleblowers or the people who need to confess or the people that call you at four in the morning. I mean, I think I can say that Anthony came on the show, you know, he would sometimes refer to a conversation with Paul and it took me a while to figure out he met Paul Manafort. Like while we were wondering who was talking to Jared and Ivanka in the New York Times, you guys were there with the less savory characters on the phone with you. And I don't know what has been in it for them to talk to you. Why did they feel at home with you or eager to kind of unburden themselves to you? Sure. I think that's a really valid question. Obviously, we're not part of the DC culture. And I'm not putting that down in the sense of in terms of access, access has a benefit for you know, for some reporters and for for news organizations. And I don't necessarily think that, you know, access is such a bad thing. But Anthony is based in New York and I'm based in L.A. And, you know, we travel wherever we need to travel to try and convince people to speak with us. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've thought about it also. Why do people speak with us? I mean, and Mm -hmm. and I think that one, to sort of give your listeners a visual, the reality is, is that when you meet Anthony and I, we're both covered in tattoos, you know. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. We don't wear blazers and jackets. Sometimes I'll show up in a band Mm t-shirt. There's a way in which he and I together put people at ease, right? That they know that they're speaking to journalists. I mean, I confide everything to Anthony the second I meet him. (laughs) Another friend of mine instantly told him all the guys she had a crush on in the office of the special counsel and would he set her up with them. And the second time I signaled with you, I told you about my own struggles with addiction. So, yes, there's something so human about you that is not intimidating. And, you know, the fact that you might even understand someone who seems so icky to the Post and the Times like Michael Cohen, that you might understand his struggle. I think makes you better able to tell the story. I think so, too. And I think certainly my own personal experience and struggles, if you will, that, you know, I've gone through over the course of many years is, as I think, enabled me to, in times when I need to be compassionate, to do so. Let me just note a real kind of dark moment for here is that 
almost three years ago, my brother was murdered. Mm -hmm. And it was the most horrific thing that I've ever dealt with in my life. You know, I received a phone call from my father that my brother, my older brother, was brutally attacked. And he was stabbed more than a dozen times. He succumbed to his wounds about nine days later. That was the most devastating thing that has ever happened to me. It's happened to my family. In fact, it's Mm -hmm. still surreal. At that time, all I could do to deal with my trauma, my grief, was to work. And my brother was the most supportive an encouraging person in terms of my work as a journalist. In fact, there was a front page New York Times story that was written about me and about my FOIA work that after it was published, the editor of that piece reached out to me and said, I don't know if you know how this story came about, but I happened to have bring my car into a repair shop in the Bronx that my brother was working on. He said, I met your brother. And he started talking about your work and talking about all the work that you did on uh, uh, this Freedom of Information uh, Act work. And when it came, came time for us to do a story, you know, I, I recommended it be you. So it was this moment where I was like, wow, you know, I threw myself into work to deal with this. And that ultimately meant for me that I just had no fear, right? And yeah. it meant that There was no fear in making a phone call or trying to contact someone because my world changed. I'm not sure if this is resonating or if people could understand it, but my world changed at that moment. And continuing the work that I was doing, continuing doing it with Anthony was so important to me. That kind of hesitancy that I may have had, you know, in the past about reaching out to people, it just disappeared. I just had no fear. So if it meant, I don't know, contacting somebody from the special counsel's office, contacting an FBI official, it just disappeared. So when it came time to meet these characters, and they really are characters, I think what they saw in me was someone that ultimately have to remind them, like, I'm a journalist. If you're going to say something, it's going to be on the record unless we have a discussion that it's not. That they felt more at ease to open up to me, to open up to Anthony. In the discussion of the framing of the media as sort of members of the elite, a couple of things get overlooked. I just keep thinking, how is it that I got to enter the elite right when I have no money? (laughs) Like, I just like, I have the worst of both. You know what I mean? Yeah. Our profession doesn't pay very well. And almost none of us had health insurance. And my union also collapsed. I was in the newspaper union. But yeah, somehow media elite. But also newspaper people were supposed to be accessible because they were also in a union and they worked in this inky job and they ate badly and drank and weren't showing up on television all the time. And so could talk to dock workers, even at the New York Times. The thing is, in some ways, you and Anthony look exactly like journalists should look. The weird thing is that it's changed and that so many people are so camera ready. Frankly, I don't understand how they do it. Like if you spend the day filing FOIAs and or like pounding on doors trying to talk to Michael Cohen's mistress or not to say he has one, but, you know, types like that. How do you also like get in makeup and get into your seat to be on MSNBC? I just simply don't know what that working life looks like. But anyway, there it is. There's a media elite. And I think the fact that you guys use the tactics of mid-century newspaper men probably helped. 
Yeah, I think that here's the thing is that I, I think it's really interesting, particularly in the climate that we're in, right, in which... You know, as you noted, lots of journalists are now analysts and on the various cable networks. This is not something that, you know, that Anthony and I thought about. We didn't think about, like, how could we stand out or stand apart for everyone else? I mean, we are who we are, right? I -hmm. happen to have this incredible love of music and journalism. And I have a vast T-shirt collection of, you know, vast rock T-shirt collection that I wear to the office every day. I I'll see wear. like you in black flag t-shirts pictures. Yes. You know, I have probably 20 or 30 different black flag t-shirts. It's essentially just who we are. Mm-hmm. And we kind of just go about our business and conduct ourselves just without really thinking about it. For the most part, you know, it's just been the two of us, right? For the yeah, two of us for yeah. the past two years, we've had some assistance from our colleagues inside the BuzzFeed newsroom. But by and large, it's just been us. It's been us up against, you know, incredibly powerful, you know, media organizations like the Washington Post, like the New York Times, like CNN, who have a number of journalists that are assigned to one story where you could see there's 12 bylines. So when when Anthony and I broke this definitive story about the Trump Tower Moscow negotiations, yes. you yeah. know, what, what took place behind the scenes was literally writing all night long. All night long right. until the morning hours. I mean, we didn't stop. He and I were both in Washington, D.C. We obtained these documents and we stayed up all night long to write it. This is the letter of intent and emails that were just astounding. I mean, nobody had those kind of receipts. Primary documents are not really what most of the media organizations traffic in. That's a space that BuzzFeed has kind of carved out for itself, right? It is. And I think that BuzzFeed is, first of all, Ben Smith and our editors at, you know, at the time, Mark Schufs and our, you know, our editors, Heidi Blake and Ariel Kaminer. I mean, I, I, I want to note that like, they are so incredibly supportive of yeah. this type of forensic you know, journalism, the importance of documents, not just obtaining documents through you know, these Freedom of Information Act requests and lawsuits, but obviously just trying to get people to turn over documents to us. And, and, and the reason why we felt, and I personally feel, you know, that, that documents are so important, particularly in a climate where you have the president of the United States constantly, you know, stating that the media is the enemy of the people, where mm-hmm. you have the public that sometimes for legitimate reasons distrusts the media where there have been, you know, mistakes, where there, you know, the the media itself can be incredibly partisan. That mm-hmm. documents just don't lie, right? Documents, it speaks for itself. We, the journalists, try to present the documents in a in, in a narrative way, and I mm-hmm. think it helps build trust, right? It not only helps, it helps to get readers trust us as individual reporters, but it helps to establish trust within you know, the news organization. It's hugely important if you're going to make a bold claim or allegation about an individual or business that may be involved in money laundering or suspicious financial transactions as it relates to the Russia investigation, that it would be nice to let the readers know that you have some documents that can either back it up or you've seen some documents. I filed a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit against the Justice Department to obtain another copy of the Mueller report in order to be able to, 
you know, challenge the redactions that are in the report, you know. Hmm. So that's something that no other news organization is doing. And we are doing that. The FOIA part in particular seems unique to you. I know Glenn Simpson is also a FOIA fiend, but I think you're called like a FOIA terrorist at times. Yes. You just will do the paperwork and will also wade through what you get. You know, there's some, I think, image on your, what is your pinned tweet or something shows a stack of, I can't count them, but it's reams upon reams of paper of all the stuff you've gotten in, what, 2019 alone? It's actually just the responses. Oh, those are just the responses. Those so are most just of them the are just responses, yeah. Most of them are just single page or two page letters back. There are not even a lot of clips on here. Just having the patience and the appetite for risk because you're suing and suing. There's so many abrasions that follow living like that and baiting people like that and getting doors slammed in your face and then trying them again. I don't know what it takes, like what makes someone like you so ferocious. Honestly, I mean, I'm compelled to try and shed light on secret activity, on on secret government conduct. And I love the battle. I am so excited at the possibility of getting a secret document, you know, just to sort of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. To go back a bit, you know, I filed the Freedom of Information Act request and ultimately the lawsuit that forced the release of all of Hillary Clinton's emails. And it was my FOIA lawsuit that became the vehicle by which the State Department rolled out Hillary Clinton's emails over the course of a year. Now, what people don't know is that, you know, what motivated me to do that? Okay. I wrote about it. I'm not sure it was widely read. But what motivated me to do it is that in late 2014, we all knew that Hillary Clinton was going to run for president. And as the nation's top diplomat, I wanted to shed light and inform the public about how she conducted herself as the nation's top diplomat on matters of foreign policy, on human rights, on issues related to Afghanistan and national security and a number of different issues. I want to stop you because basically Hillary is to me, I'm not just one of those people who thinks she should have won or did win. She's to me what like black flag is to you. So (laughs) I hate stories that have the expression Hillary's emails in them. But I also get that transparency for one, transparency for all, if that's like your animating principle. But I do wonder. But here's the thing. I'm sorry to cut you off. When I filed this request, I had no idea that Hillary Clinton, you know, used a private email server. Ah. It was was unknown to me. So what happened was, is I filed the request, then sued the government. And, you know, people sometimes think I've been accused of weaponizing FOIA. I've been accused by the NSA of weaponizing the Freedom of Information Act. I filed this request and sued in January of 2015. And it wasn't until two months later um, that the New York Times broke the story that she used a private email server. So I I didn't even know that. What I was trying to do was simply get records so the public could be informed about how the nation's top diplomat would perform as president. This was not a partisan act. But what, you know, what my my point in saying this is that ultimately what happened was the scandal revolving around the server obscured everything that I was hoping to do with the disclosure of these records. 
weaponizing is an interesting word of our time and sort of dovetails with the question I also wanted to ask you. So you come from Vice and Al Jazeera, which are typically seen as lefty, somewhat gonzo oppositional journalism or adversarial journalism with the U.S. government in particular. I'm just going to put it bluntly. Why didn't you go the way of Glenn Greenwald on The Intercept? You mean in terms of politically, because if you start out with the we open governments, the WikiLeaks, right. you know, we open governments thing, the obsession with transparency, which I share. But if you start with that, it is quite easy. It's very heady. And once you understand that you can frame your findings for max propaganda effect, it's more than just transparency. You know, it's what the NSA accused you of weaponizing. I I think we can agree that WikiLeaks weaponized Hillary's emails in a way that you didn't by framing them and dropping them at a particular time and really using them to push for Trump and serve their Russian overlords. (laughs) But you didn't go that direction. You could have gone, if you didn't go all the way to Assange, you could have at least found yourself in the order bit of Greenwald and, I don't know, reality winner or something. But instead, you use both the FOIA old-fashioned hacking, right? Because you get documents by suing for them. You don't get documents by hacking. So you have that side of things. And then the other side is traditional journalism, storytelling. Yeah, look, we're living in a time where journalism itself is, you know, not only under attack, but journalists and, and, and media outlets have popped up that are so unbelievably partisan and individual journalists that are extremely partisan. I would love to have someone leak a bunch of documents to me on a daily basis. <laughs> it doesn't happen. You know, Edward, the Edward Snowdens of the world do not come around every single day. Yeah. And it's certainly not enough to sustain the type of work that I do, the type of work that Anthony does, or any single news organization. So it means that we constantly have to work to try and obtain that information, whether it's through documents or sources. I just happen to love documents. I think documents, in their own way, they just, you know, as I said, it speaks for itself. And I also love going to battle against the government to obtain those documents. But I think it's really something that I need to note. And I think that I've yeah, you know, I'm going to speak for Anthony on this one too. Is that we're just two guys, two who journalists who just really love, you know, the the chase of a good story. Yeah. Um, yeah, I am not emotionally invested in Donald Trump, in Donald Trump being impeached, in bringing down Donald Trump's presidency at all. Anthony and I have not been emotionally invested in anything that we've reported over the past two years. Perhaps this may rub people the wrong way, but I go to sleep at night thinking about my next story, thinking about a big story, not thinking about a left-wing story or how I'm going to bring down anyone. I'm thinking of the type of watchdog accountability journalism that I've always been passionate about, and that's it. I've been watching obsessively Chernobyl on HBO. Have you seen it? I have not. All right. It is well worth watching. There's so many great things to take away from it. But among other things, there's two scientists who just simply want to somehow explain to the party apparatchiks in the Soviet Union how dangerous radiation is to the body and to the groundwater and to the whole Asian landmass, basically. And they keep getting blocked from finding out or just getting the numbers that they know are there because it's being played politically. These are a few days after the nuclear reactor melted down. You just find yourself so invested in just getting this one number, which is the number of rentgens. That's the like the measure of radiation in the air. 
You just want like that number, you know, and right. they keep spinning it and saying, we'll put this disinformation out. And like now we're hurting our reputation with other countries. I feel from you and Anthony that whether you're aligned with the FBI and Mueller, whether you're against the FBI and Mueller, or whether you're with the U.S. government or against it or with Hillary or with Trump, like whoever you're fighting you just want to get that number, the sort of truth of what happened, which I think is why you're so engaged in primary documents, because you just want something irrefutable. Exactly. And we do. Look, we want people to trust our reporting, to trust what we are reporting to them, what we are disseminating. I mean, ultimately, that is first and foremost accuracy and, and truth and winning the trust of our readers is very important to us. Um, yeah. I've found that documents, more so than anonymous sources, is the path to that, particularly right now where there's so much distrust, mistrust of the media. I'm not sure I believe this thing that there's like widespread distrust of the media, or at least where we understand trust to have something to do with accuracy, that you earn people's trust by being accurate. I mean, I've never seen fewer corrections in a period of history in journalism than now. You guys are so careful. You know, Woodward and Bernstein made a lot of front page errors, like the kind that merit corrections. For that matter, Trump can't seem to find any errors in the Mueller report. There are no errors. In, in, I mean, yeah. he'll dismiss something out of hand, but it seems like you guys are working at the height of accuracy. And that means that the conversations about is BuzzFeed ethical or the Times ethical or whatever is a conversation about politics and angles not about clarity and truth. And that's too bad that we got dragged into that. I mean, in the media, got dragged into that, to doubting ourselves to some extent. Yes, I completely agree. A lot of people seem to be working at the height of their powers. I mean, I'm astonished. Out of nowhere, Business Insider produces Natasha Bertrand, and she's just like synthesizes stuff so quickly. And then great reporting, obviously, out of Florida, out of Arizona, out of Michigan on the Larry Nasser stuff, all being told over and over again, how feckless and not trustworthy everything the media is while they're doing their best work. And the next time someone says fake news or I don't trust the media or the media is so biased, I want to be like, tell me one fact error you've seen anywhere. Sure. And I think that, look, I agree with you. And I think that when you have a president who is constantly hammering away at the media and saying the media is the enemy of the people, the media is getting this wrong, that that this is not true, that it's a winch hunt, that they're against me, there are going to be people that will believe that. It's disinformation in and of itself. And the reality is, is that there are media outlets that, whether they're independent outlets, whether they're you know, bloggers or, or whomever, that have a platform that can publish stories that in some way will live up to what the president is saying. But the vast majority of journalists that I know and, and the folks that I work with inside of BuzzFeed, um, they just want to report the truth. And yeah. we try and find people who will help us understand the issues that the public should know about. I mean, when, when Anthony and I are reporting a story, I can tell you that like we have to carve out a week for the lawyers, for our mm. editors to go through a story. We don't just, you know, we're not churning things out 
uh, or churning reportage out on a daily basis that way. I mean, this is an incredibly painstaking effort that we go through to ensure the accuracy of the story. The Michael Cohen story and the possible or it looks like probable subordination of perjury that you all reported on, which is the thing that OSC wrote to you about mistakes in your reporting. Now it seems like there were no mistakes in your reporting. Talk us through from your point of view, because I've talked to Anthony about this, but I think this encapsulates so much about what's strange about reporting in our time and the culpability of the president and then the triangulation with the special counsel and the FBI. Can you tell the backstory even more than I know from Anthony? Because this part is a page turner, I think. Trump asked Michael Cohen to lie and what came after. The topic at hand is the timing of the Trump Tower deal that Cohen lied to Congress about it. Will you take it away? Yeah, Cohen originally told Congress that, and we learned this partially, uh, additional information from the transcripts. Yeah. That, um, you know, from his closed door house intelligence testimony in February and March that were released on May 21st. So just a couple days ago. Yeah, he testified that the negotiations went well, first of all, he, t- he lied. He lied in 2017 and said that the negotiations into Trump Moscow didn't really go anywhere and ended in January 2016, right before the Iowa caucuses. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you know, what, what Anthony and I had done um, to prove that that was just a flat out lie and that, in fact, Donald Trump and the Trump Organization associates who were you know, part of the Trump Organization that they were negotiating this deal, this potentially, this $300 million potential deal well into the campaign. And we obtained records to show that, in fact, that's what happened. Before we published this story. And that's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. In fact, uh, you know, like I said, before we published the story, everyone was under the impression that it ended in January 2016. It was, you know, it was a nothing deal and it didn't go anywhere. You know, obviously, to be clear, there's no Trump Tower Moscow that was built. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, after we published the story, which we said was based on documents. We've, you know, we quoted text messages and emails mm-hmm. between Felix Sater, who was a longtime Trump organization associate. He helped on some of these licensing deals. Another colorful character that we wrote about. We were, Anthony and I, you know, were told through our sources, and it became clear through some of our reporting, that this was a, the, the, this tower deal and the lies that revolved around it was a main focus of the investigation of Robert Mueller's investigation. Hmm. And we were chasing that story for a year because it not only involved Michael Cohen and Felix Sater and these secret discussions that they had to try and get this project off the ground, but it also involved Ivanka Trump, Don mm-hmm. Jr., and others. And you know, there, there, there was a lot of money that, um, you know, that was at stake here. Why pursue that over George Papadopoulos or Mike Flynn or the back channel with Jared and Kislyak? I mean, there were so many avenues to think about this. How did you manage to put your chips on what seems to be the most powerful through line in the story? Honestly, it was it was part of it was guidance, another uh, guidance from from some sources. Some sources very, very close to the investigation. It seems like anyone reading your work can tell that. OSC was supposed to be airtight and never leaking, but someone close to it was talking to you guys. Well, I will not discuss any of our sources, yes, but okay. I, you know, I will say that, that you know, Anthony and I have very good sources. We spent a yeah. lot of time cultivating sources, 
And um, again, through you know our, our work, sort of our reporting sort of backs that up. And and with Trump Tower Moscow, you know, we obtained a a cache of records that yeah. we knew were not only that these records were in the hands of the special counsel, but the Trump organization didn't turn this over to or some of these records over to Congress Mm -hmm. um, and to some of the congressional committees. Um, So my point being that, you know, you have Felix Sater, who's testifying in December 2018, I believe, uh, to House Intel. And months before that, Michael Cohen was testifying. Uh, Excuse me, Senate Intel, House Intel. And months before that, Michael Cohen was testifying. And he was testifying that, oh, this all ended in January 2016. You know, Felix Sater is testifying months later that it ended in, I I believe, June 2016. And then we start, you know, as you can tell, these are both individuals who, you know, you've got to go the extra mile um, to vet the info because of, you know, the the fact is, is that there have been instances when when both of them have have been truthful. So that's when Anthony and I were felt that this is a big story. There's there's something big here. And it was part of it was just that gut instinct, right? Mm -hmm. This was a gut instinct. This is something we need to stay on. And we just continue to chase it. And then we found out, you know, um, after we obtained these documents, how deeply involved Michael Cohen was, Trump himself, how involved he was. I mean, we learned a year ago, um, before we reported in January, that Trump had 10 different conversations with Michael Cohen about this. Mm-hmm. That, uh, you know, Michael Cohen had been speaking to, you know, to Russian officials about this. But, you know, we, we didn't feel that we had everything that we needed to at the time to report it. So we continue yeah. to chase it. And then after we published this story, six months, seven months later, Michael Cohen pled guilty to, you know, to lying to Congress. Mm-hmm. And that was stunning because I remember waking up that morning and I had like six missed calls from Anthony and, uh, you know, Twitter was lit up yeah. with discussion revolving around this. And, and essentially yep. everything that we reported, you know, months earlier was laid bare in the um, in the charging documents uh, that came from Mueller's office, yeah, and you know there were a couple of noteworthy elements of those court documents that we wanted to further chase down, mm-hmm. which essentially ultimately became the story that we reported in January that Trump directed Michael Cohen to lie, um, that um, he had ten discussions with um, with Donald Trump about Trump Tower Moscow, that Trump's attorneys were involved in drafting and editing Michael Cohen's false statement uh, to Congress, Mm -hmm. um, and that Ivanka and Don Jr. were were also aware and briefed about this. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's the report that we wrote. And we, we, that was based on months and months of reporting, you know, using the same sources that we had used in the past. And uh, we also stated that, you know, that that Mueller's office obtained records and learned about this through interviews and documents obtained from from sources. And our story stated that there was an explicit instruction to Michael Cohen by Donald Trump to lie to Congress. Then first you get the OSC note that says there is something like inaccuracies, which it can't back up, and then no corrections are warranted. So it just like casts a pall over the story. And that's when you started getting death threats, because if something comes from Peter Carr and the Office of the Special Counsel, then somehow they're like an oracle. And if they say you're wrong, even if they don't give any details, it's assumed that you're now on the bad side of the divide. So you guys went from 
being so much in sync with the special counsel that your investigation was you were ahead of them or ahead of what we knew they were doing for so long. And then all of a sudden, it was like you were on opposite sides of something. But we never found out what they were complaining about around this, you know, had Trump suborned perjury from Michael Cohen. Then they gave their own account of what seemingly happened in that room when Cohen was directed to lie by Trump or said he was directed to lie by Trump. But somehow it's all just been confusing to me. And where do things land? I'll break it down into good questions. What do you think now that they were trying to express in that strange tone poem note that you got from the Office of the Special Counsel? What were their qualms with your story? Yeah. So, you know, let me just say this to give a little bit behind the scenes about this story. Again, Anthony and I had been chasing and reporting on Trump Tower Moscow for the better part of a year and a half. Mm -hmm. We had written a 5,000 plus word piece that laid bare all of the discussions that took place during the course of the campaign about the efforts to get Putin, you know, involved in the approval process and to get this project off the ground. We based that reporting on sources and hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents. We, again, during the course of our reporting, found that Donald Trump had lied publicly during the course of the campaign when yeah. he no stated that you know, there was no involvement in Trump Tower Moscow, or actually he didn't say that there were no deals related to business in Russia, and we had the documents showing that he was in the know. So then we get to the fact that Michael Cohen testifies and had testified falsely, it lied to Congress, and mm -hmm. that we were already obtaining information that showed that the individuals who were directing that was the president himself and the president's attorneys. And so... Mm -hmm. In January, we reported that story. January, I believe it was 17th, very mm -hmm. late at night. The question of who are you and what are your motives, which is like, for some reason, a turn that we all take in the media now, just suddenly everybody is assumed to have some nefarious or partisan interest in the things they're writing. And this should go back to other problems in their biography. I'm always dogged by RT in particular, loves to bring up certain articles I wrote. Chapo will always take me to task for old articles I wrote. It's almost like a set of memes. And in your case, they were using your memoir. But this tracks, and here's where I don't know if you'll think this transition holds, but to my last question, that's a very Trumpy thing to do. Turn it around from the facts, the irrefutable facts of the Mueller report, to suddenly a discussion of the origins of the Mueller report as if it mattered. As if it mattered, you know, if Seth Abramson says, like, it doesn't matter if a bunny in a pink suit shows up at your door saying, oh, look into Trump's Russia ties. And then you look into those Russia ties. It doesn't matter how investigations start. It matters what they turn up and the accuracy of what they turn up. So anyway, no one has a single question or a quarrel with anything in the Mueller report. No one on either side, not Trump himself, not Don Jr. Nobody has said, well, he really got this thing wrong. Vanafort didn't talk to Kalimnik. No. No, everything in it is right. But it's still important that we find out if Peter Strzok was sexting whoever. And now we need a whole new investigation into the FBI, into Mueller, into everyone for their dark motives or their drinking problem or their sexting or whatever. So tell me about that investigation, because I know from Anthony that it is addling the Bureau that they're suddenly under scrutiny themselves, having just produced the Mueller report 
Anyone who read that report knows they found nothing but collusion and obstruction. And now the FBI is suddenly not only not being heard on the things that it discovered, but being like now caught in crosshairs itself. So what the hell is going on with this other origins investigation? Well, first, you know, I feel compelled to say this, that any kind of oversight effort to look into the FBI, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think the FBI mm-hmm. has a <laughs> FBI has a long, long history, and even under Comey, frankly, of doing things that should be scrutinized. OK, mm-hmm. obviously, under what's happening now is politically motivated, or at least it appears that way, politically motivated mm-hmm. in the sense of like, you know, turning the tables and seeing how, you know, what the origins of the investigation are. It's essentially in the hands of the Office of Inspector General to kind of take a look at the origins of this, how the Steele report sort of, you know, sparked an investigation. What did the, you know, the, the ways in which the FBI conducted themselves, the Bureau conducted itself rather, during the course of this investigation, All of that is being scrutinized. And now Barr has appointed not a special counsel, but a U.S. attorney from Connecticut named John Durham. John Durham has a long history of kind of doing these meta investigations. He looked at the FBI's very problematic relationship with Whitey Bulger. More than a decade later or about a decade later, he then was tasked uh, under the Bush administration, the the attorney general in the Bush administration, Michael Mukasey, to take a look at the CIA's destruction of uh, of videotapes, these videotapes that captured the torture of detainees in custody of the CIA, which uh, Gina Haspel, right, our current CIA director, was involved in. Yes. That mandate was expanded by Eric Holder to allow John Durham to then look at the deaths of of a number of detainees Mm -hmm. uh, in CIA custody. And what happened was... um, Ultimately, nobody was prosecuted for any alleged crimes that took place. Right. Essentially, this was, you know, people felt, uh, human rights groups, legal scholars felt this was sort of swept under the rug. But he has a lot of experience with it. And at that time, I believe he was a special prosecutor. So if we want transparency for the FBI, sometimes we should want it all the time. So a certain amount of probing into the so-called origins of the Mueller investigation you think is warranted in the name of transparency? Hey, look, I, I, I think it's warranted. I can tell you that I'm interested in it. Hmm. You know, I certainly think that there is, if we believe, and as, as we should, you can give people, you know, the uh, government agency the benefit of the doubt if you want and say that this was, you know, conducted, you know, because there was grave concern for national security. Sure. Why shouldn't that be transparent and, and lay that bare? It's certainly the kind of work that Anthony and I are continuing to do with our pursuit of documents that were part of the Mueller probe and the pursuit of documents that predated the Mueller probe. Mm-hmm. I think that there's certainly a lot of questions that should be asked. But the reality is, is that, as, as you noted, this is not a bipartisan effort, right? This is something that is just so partisan. You have some folks that are, that are saying this is a bad thing because it is being done, because it's politically motivated, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to saying that some sunshine, particularly in something like this, is, is not necessarily a bad thing. And I think that the comments by you know, Attorney General William Barr certainly underscore why it's so politically motivated. Mm -hmm. But as I noted, the Justice Department's inspector general has been conducting this review. I don't even think it's a real investigation. It's a review. And by the way, Barr also has, you know, uh, another U.S. attorney, I believe, in Utah that's that's also kind of 
taking a look at this. So, mm. you know, in a way, the tables have been turned. And that's why it's important for while these efforts are taking place. And as we know from Barr's very, very brief summary of the Mueller report mm -hmm. in that memo that he put out there, why it's yeah. important for, for journalists to conduct the same type of, you know, kind of investigation, if you will, a parallel investigation, right? So you have the Mueller report that lays bare what they found, but there were more than a million pages of documents that informed the drafting of that report. We right. want to get those documents. We want those FBI 302 interview summaries with everyone so yeah. we can further expand upon what was taking place. Just what happened. Yeah, and why, yeah. The, why these agencies, why the U.S. government believed national security was being threatened. I mean, we all want to know, and it is of your many skills, the, I've got to say, the patience for these FOIA applications and lawsuits. <laughs> FOIA is like yoga in some ways because it's, <laughs> you know, it's just, you just become so accustomed to, to waiting six months or a year. I mean, look, this is a long <laughs> game. And I think yeah. that, you know, the type of work that, that we're doing, which is unusual right now, right? Because it's like, you think about Michael Cohen's interview transcripts, these 650 pages, uh, to House Intel. Yeah. On its own, it's explosive. He's making some explosive claims. But have you, you read know, it all? It takes time. I have read it all. It's really explosive. The allegations that he was, you know, that he has made against the president of the United States. I mean, it takes time to digest that and to kind mm -hmm. of flesh it out into a way that people understand. But we're living in a, in a time where it's just these, you know, these quick bites and mostly taking place on social media like Twitter. And so, you know, the long game you know, fewer playing that game. And, and it's, it's something that we're doing because it's ultimately, it's important that the public knows about what took place behind the scenes. And this is mm -hmm. what the special counsel found. So while they are conducting their own sort of investigation into the origins, yeah. you know, we're going to dig deeper into what ultimately is in that Mueller report. Well, I'll be on the edge of my seat reading, as usual. Jason Leopold is a senior investigative reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. So that's our show for today. What did you think? Let's talk. I'm at page 88 on Twitter, and the show on that same website is at Real Trumpcast. And why stop there? Go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus and become a Slate Plus member. Membership has its advantages, and today's the day. Exclusive, privileged, plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free. Love those ads. For only $35 for the first year, and by my calculations, that's Zlotties a day. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Neil Dandridge and TJ Raphael. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.